Dr. Yolanda Flores Niemann talks about being presumed incompetent in academia on today's Teaching in Higher Ed, number 123. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm so excited to be welcoming to the show today, Dr. Yolanda Flores Niemann. She's a professor of psychology at the University of North Texas. And before that, she served as a senior vice provost for academic affairs, vice provost and dean of the College of Humanities, Arts and Social Sciences at Utah State University, and held numerous administrative positions at Washington State University. At Washington State, Utah State, and the University of Houston, she also served as a faculty member of various academic units, including psychology, comparative ethnic studies, women's studies, disability studies, Mexican-American studies, and black studies. Today, Yolanda and I have the pleasure of having a dialogue about her book, Presumed Incompetent, The Intersections of Race and Class for Women in Academia. Yolanda, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be talking with you. As you know, the reason that you're on the show today is that one of our listeners and member of the community and a recent guest, Anne-Marie Perez, had recommended that I read your book and also because she knew I had a goal of talking a lot more about culture and race and ethnicity that you're someone who really just produced a transformative work. And so thank you for that gift, because it's been a gift to me and I know to many others. The book, by the way, is called Presumed Incompetent. And I'd first love to hear you share a little bit, Yolanda, about how did you decide to write this book? How did it emerge into being? Yeah, so I had published an article called The Making of a Token. That was my experience in being tokenized at a university in my first academic job. And that made the rounds like wildfire because people had not really written about those experiences. And there were so many of them that, uh, you know, so the, the first author, Gabriela Guterres de Muz, actually called me and she said, I read your piece and uh, will you mentor me and let's write a book because there's too many of us ex- make, having these experiences. So we got together, uh, the, the four of us, the, the four editors got together and we put out a call. And uh, frankly, we got so many papers. We, we turned away about three-fourths of the papers that we got. So these papers were reading like it was 1950 instead of, you know, 2010 when we put out the call, 2011 and 2012 as we were getting the papers. Uh, so we wanted people of color in academia to know that they were not alone and that the experiences they were having were not isolated, that we want people to know that it's not about them, it's about the situation. When I was reading your book, I I was corresponding a little bit both with you and also with Anne-Marie. 
And she spoke about how hard of a read it is. It's, it's important, but it is a difficult read. And she talked a little bit about sometimes she'd have to step away and then come back for it because she had her own experiences to reflect on. And I was cracking up because as I was finishing it, I did find myself needing to give myself a small break. And so at the same time, when I needed a little break, I started reading this decorating book, by, which is by a Japanese woman. I'll, have, I'll put a link in the show notes to it. But it made me laugh so much because I was so used to, okay, I'm going to go here from another person and it's going to be difficult, but but this is so important for me to do. And I'd have this mindset I'd get myself into. And the stories are also beautiful. And this one was weird though, because I, I thought, well, what are we doing talking about when you were little organizing? Well, okay, so, you know, maybe this is a cultural thing I'm not really thinking about. And it turned out I thought I was reading your book and I was actually reading a different one just <laughs> for about 10 minutes till I figured it out. <laughs> well, but they are painful stories indeed. And the reason they're painful is uh, we can't believe that this is happening today, and they're, they're unjust experiences. It, it's uh, it's unfair, it's unjust, and uh, painful. And and frankly, uh, some of the times when we read read some of these, we're just sickened by what we're reading. It's like, really, can human beings do this to one another? Is this possible? Especially in the uh, in the ivory tower, which we say you know, we think this is the most elite people, the most educated, the most well-behaved, and yet academia remains one of the most elite uh, bastions of, of all industries, of all organizations. I am not going to ask you for a favorite story because I already know without even asking that that would be impossible, but what is one story that stands out to you, Yolanda, as being representative of the the overarching theme of the book, and that is what it means to be presumed incompetent. Well, Sherry Wilson's uh, uh, They Forgot Mammy Had a Brain is one of them, and you're right, it's really hard to choose. I could, I could go through uh, each one of these stories. Carmen Lugo Lugo is a prostitute and a servant. The Michelle Jacobs about American Indians. Linda Vos about accents. Kupenda about being told that, you know, there are no spooks in this room. Uh, but or, or I'll do Cherie Wilson. The, they forgot Mammy had a brain. And, you know, she reports people getting notes on their doors from the KKK, uh, people telling her how, well, gee, everyone in my family hates niggers, but not me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm one of the good ones. You know, I love black people. Or, you know, I had a maid and she was awesome. So, you know, black people are okay uh, for some of us and not others, and we're okay. Uh, black people are okay in certain in servant roles. But uh, and then being trotted around by the by academia, you know, being the only black person around, and then when academia needs you, like on MLK days, or you know, frankly, like what's going on today. I'm thinking about all the, all the African American faculty out there, and how the unrest and and the crises that we're seeing today, like in Tulsa and uh, in Charlotte, our faculty of color are being severely impacted by these because I imagine universities are trotting them out for their as because they need a token to show that they're they're not racist and you know, I, I suspect that a lot of these black faculty are being called to you know round up the black students go ahead and you know you know take care of them nurture them be their mammy you know you know be 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 their be their mother this is you know her story is they forgot mammy had a brain you know be be, be the nurturer and uh, I I cannot help but think about what's going on with my black peers 
in different institutions as as universities are dealing with student activism and outcry around what they're seeing on television. Uh, universities need somebody to help them, and they will call on their few black faculty to do this. Whenever we're reading stories like this, it's helpful, of course, to empathize. And so as I read them, I think, gosh, I can recall times in my own teaching experience where young people would would maybe look to me to try to be the nurturer. So I can at least have a tiny sense, but I'm sure it's quite small. Because one of the things that you share about of your both, it's a challenge for the kind of scholarship that you did in this book. But it's also a challenge for someone like me to necessarily fully relate or fully empathize. And that is something called intersectionality. And can you talk a little bit about what your definition is of intersectionality and then how it complicates research and then also complicates really empathy for people like me? Uh, absolutely. So uh, Carmen Lugos, uh, the prostitute servant customer service rep, is, is, is a good indication, uh, a representation of uh, intersectionality, although I think every one of our uh, chapters speak to it in some way. So intersectionality refers to the, uh, the complications, if you will, of the dynamics of not just being, say, a woman, but being a woman of color. And then if you're gay, that adds another layer. And you're, if you remember, uh, if you grew up in the low socioeconomic status, that adds yet another layer. And, and all of these different layers create dynamics about who you are and how you fit within an organization, uh, how you believe you fit, but more importantly, how you are perceived to fit by others. So, for instance, women of color, and as, as indicated in, in story after story and presumed incompetent, are, are often... Uh, made to prove that what they're saying is true. So as, as one woman says, I had to pull up statistics, photos, theories, graphs, constantly as evidence that well, what I was saying was true. And then she finds out, uh, lo and behold, that her white colleagues didn't have to do this. And up until then, she thought everybody did this. And that's an example of how the intersections work here. So she's a, oh, a, a person of color and a woman, and the archetypal, in academia, the archetypal professor is a white male. So a woman of color is already different in two ways. And then, like I said, if you add, when you add a social class and gender identity, uh, that's, that's more layers that have to be navigated. And you talked about a bit early in the book on how challenging this was for some of your research, because there would be reports around you know, X is true regarding ethnicity, but they didn't even break out the layer around male versus female. Can you share a little bit more about some of those challenges you've encountered? I think a lot of them you mentioned were having to do with even some of the quantitative data. Absolutely. So in fact, uh, one of the phrases that, that you and some of your listeners may find very common is the phrase women and minorities or women and people of color. And when you break that down, you know, so it, it's hard to tell what are people talking about when, when, when they're presenting data that says women and minorities, you know, so who are the women? And, and it turns out that when, when these uh, uh, are, are deconstructed, these phrases are deconstructed, the word women tends to refer to white women. So the phrase makes white women the de facto women and then people of color are the men and women of color. And, and so, and, and that, that happens in research, and it is my experience that most researchers 
do not deconstruct or break out the intersectionalities. You know, they just say women or they just say men, or in some cases they'll say Americans. And and I've asked sometimes when I've been listening to a talk at a conference after somebody's been talking on and on about Americans, and I'll, I'll raise my hand and I'll say, well, can you break down Americans a little bit? Who are these people? And it turns out that they're really referring to white Americans because they haven't asked black Americans or Latinos who have a very different experience in the United States, generally speaking, than do white Americans, especially in different domains. Another word that gets used often in the book, and I know is one of your areas of expertise, is tokenism. And I wonder if you'd share a story with us about, it could be from the book or even from other research that you've done about how tokenism rears its head in academia. Yes. Well, in fact, one of the the original story that that I, I mentioned, the making of a token, that's in the book. It was um, it's published again in the book, presumed incompetent, at the insistence of my co-editors, is, is a really good representation of how that happens. So, you know, you start out as a faculty member. You you walk in and you're a you're in my case a psychologist. So I've got a PhD in psychology. And I'm excited. I'm going to teach psychology, do researches uh, in psychology. But suddenly, I'm being perceived not as a psychologist, but as the uh, the Latina faculty member. Uh, in, in my case, there were about 35 faculty in the department, and only about four were women at the time. And at the time that I was hired, I was the only person of color in the entire department, and that was in the city of Houston. So uh, it... it where there were where a lot of the undergraduates were actually students of color, but the faculty, at least in my department, were not. And so my identity became transformed from Yolanda the psychologist to Yolanda the Latina, and all the biases that people have about the stereotypes about what, what, what a Mexican-American woman is. And then they began to see me through the lens of being a Mexican-American woman and, and they were giving me assignments having to do with that or, and like I said, being tokenized. Uh, even things like forgetting to do my third-year annual review because they weren't even thinking of me as a scholar, even though I was publishing and doing things that all assistant professors are supposed to do. But when they forgot to even... Uh, in academia, the third-year review is absolutely critical. It's it's an up or down review, and it it's the precursor to your tenure review. So that they even forgot to do it was was incredible and very telling. That uh, I was in their minds, I wasn't even a a scholar, and I'd only been there three years, and they had already transformed my identity in in their own minds, not in mine. So it, it's very powerful. Uh, and tokenism generally occurs when people in the in the environment uh, are fewer than 15% of the total. So let's say in academia that, uh, and in fact, uh, in psychology in my field, uh, about 85% of all uh, faculty are white. And in academia in, in general, um, the majority of faculty are white. So in, in academia in general, it's, Let's see, it's uh, the national diversity has uh, among males, 79% are white, and among females, 78% are white. So uh, in, in nationally, only about 20% of uh, faculty are people of color. So it is very likely that we're going to end up in these contexts. But importantly, tokenism is not just about numbers. It's about how you're treated when you're in that context. Are you, do you, in fact, remain the scholar in your field, 
or do you become the, the black person or the Latina person? We're going to trot out when there's a crisis. Do you become the person who teaches our, our diversity studies? So, for instance, in one university I was at, I started the same time as a Korean-American man. And, uh, within, and he was in psychology. And within a couple of weeks, he came to my office and said, I need help. I've been asked to teach the psychology of diversity course, and I don't know a thing about that topic. My area is major depression. I know about major depression. I don't know a thing about diversity. And I told the chair this, but the chair said, sorry, you're, you're the closest thing we got. You got to do it. So that, that's an example of you know, your identity being transformed and how you become tokenized. No matter how you think of yourself, you cease to be the independent scholar that you walked in as and become what the environment needs you to be because you're one of the few people of color in the environment. I think it's easy to listen to stories as you're sharing and, and as we read your book and think, and I know in my head, I'm, I know I'm often thinking about those other people who are tokenizing. <laughs> it's like, that's yeah. a really easy way to go, okay, I need to protect, or, or maybe it's not even protecting one's sense of self, but it also could just be a real inability to be self-aware and aware of the ways in which we are tokenizing others. What are some of the less blatant ways that that all of us have this just, it comes up, we don't mean to do it, we're not trying to tokenize? And, and it, is there such a thing as accidental tokenism where we do have oh. to become aware of it and, and we can't always be thinking about the others that are doing that to people of color? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, I think the overwhelming majority of people do not do this intentionally. I think the the situation when, when there are very few of members of a, of a group like people of color, uh, it all it sets up the uh, the perception of those people of color. It sets it up for everybody. Uh, so you know the biases kick in even unintentionally. And so so for instance, just just today, in fact, earlier today, I did uh, along with some colleagues, uh, we talked to we did a presentation for our graduate students about how to engage in faculty searches, how to be successful in faculty searches. And as I was preparing my presentation, my colleague sent me his, uh, his slides, and he said, and you might want to take the diversity angle. Mm. Well, okay, uh, I'll be happy to take the diversity angle, and, and I was already going to talk about that, but I happen to have other things to say. I have a lot of experience. But uh, that wasn't like an intentional dig on his part. It's just, it was just a function of, like, I'm one of the only ones in the department. He doesn't know anything about it. So, like, oh, she must know something, you know. Uh, so, again, it, it's not, it is not malicious. It, it is a function of, of, of the way the hiring processes have ended up with having very few people of color in academia. And so it's, it's, it sets up white people also to, to see people of color in a, in a particular role as representative of their race, as being the experts in diversity, especially if, uh, when academic institutions don't insist that, that white people also have to know something about diversity. So that, that, means that shifts everything to only one small group. It's almost ghettoized, if you will. I've done a fair amount of reading about the disparity of salaries between men and women. And of course, that just breaks down as you start to talk about intersectionality. But 
I had a conversation the other day with a colleague. It was really good. And, and I suppose when I say this, it's probably going to sound terrible. But when you know the people who are committing these acts and you know they have kindness in your hearts, I think it's easier to say, gosh, this person just doesn't know. But I was talking yeah. about how, you know, one of the reasons why we might see women paid lower in higher ed than men is simply and something I have observed on being on many search committees at my institution is that they will talk about, oh, well, this man, if he's going to come and relocate, it's really expensive here in Southern California. And he has a family because, of course, maybe that's come up during the hiring process, right? Mm -hmm, well, mm -hmm. we need to go and advocate to the provost to try to get him to be able to be paid as high on our salary scale as we can so he can afford to move here and move his family here and take care of them. I have never, ever once had someone say anything even remotely like that about a woman. Yes, and that has to do with, with our... Uh, conscious and unconscious biases about the roles of men and women in society. Men are still perceived as the providers, even though that has ceased being the case, you know, for decades. You know, women have shared that that economic provider role, and and men are starting are stepping up to the nurture role as well. I mean, it, it, it's it's an outdated model, but it's a model that we carry in our heads. But the other thing about that, Bonnie, is in my experience, women don't always negotiate in the mm -hmm. way that men negotiate. Yep. Uh, so, for instance, I've also, by the way, been uh, in very upper-level administrative positions. I just returned to the faculty last year. So I, I have a lot of experience as an administrator. And in that capacity, there was a, a woman came to see me and said, uh, she, she was one of our most preeminent scholars, and she said, I make $15,000 less than the person in the office next door to me, and we were hired at the same time. And I have more publications and more grants than he does. And I asked her a very simple question. I didn't know it was going to lead, but I said, well, what did you ask for when you were hired? And it turned out that she asked for, she got exactly what she asked for. Mm -hmm. And her colleague had asked for $15,000 more and had gotten it. So the, I think we need to help mentor women to, to, to not be afraid to negotiate. And, and, and there is a fear factor. It's like, oh, my God, will they say, you know, because they're afraid often of because that women are dis, uh, interchangeable or disposable that, well, fine, I'm not going to negotiate with her. You know, she, who does she think she is? So women fear that. We have to get over it at some point so that we can achieve pay equity because when you start that far behind, it's very hard to catch up. Some of the research talks about when they've, and actually there was a, Physicist Meg Urey from Yale was on this show, gosh, about a year ago. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But she talked about some research that she was involved in around physics colleagues and that they would have them read the exact same script or look at the exact same resume. And and it all comes down to that we we actually don't tend to accept the same kind of negotiation from women, even if they do the exact same tactic that the man uses is, well, she's being way too aggressive versus he's yeah. confident. And one of the things that's been talked about is we can shift that as women if we think about it and we approach it as in negotiating for other people. I mean, that's spot on. And, and it is the case that, like I said, we, 
talked about before that people carry around this model of who men and women are and who they are as providers and and who we're supposed to be interpersonally you know so if, if we're we're not supposed to be assertive but men can when men are assertive they're confident if we're assertive we're a bitch yeah. you know so so all that stuff is still out there yeah. but it's only when we start advocating for one another that that we're, that we're eventually going to get past that and uh, in some ways, I think it might be a generational thing. Uh, certainly, baby boomers are of that mind, but the millennials are not in power yet, so it's going to be hard to see how that shapes up. But the millennials are, are, are looking to be one of our most activist generations and one of our most social justice and equality-minded generations that we've ever had. So it's going to be interesting to see how they shape the, uh, change the, the lens. When you talked earlier about tokenism, one of the things I took away from the book is that it isn't just about numbers. And I think maybe I would have oversimplified that before reading Presumed Incompetent, that we don't necessarily make things better in our institutions simply by hiring more people of color. And talk a little bit about what is needed to stop ourselves from committing tokenism. How do we heal that in our cultures? That's a great question. And, and you're absolutely right. It is not just about numbers, because in, in some places with the small numbers, people are not tokenized. So uh, it, it's important to, to remember, uh, especially in academia, that the person is a scholar. That they're really a scholar first, that the scholar actually, that is their preeminent identity. You know, we go through great lengths to get PhDs uh, or, or law degrees or whatever degree we have to, to, to get us in these positions. However, as long as other people in the department or the university do not pick up the slack on what needs to be known about diversity to make a university function, to be able to mentor students, to provide the classes that are needed, uh, as long as that doesn't happen, it's going to be very easy to say, well, you know, like what's happened to my Korean uh, American friend, like, well, you're the closest thing we got, that the responsibility for knowing about issues of race, class, gender identity, uh, and being able to mentor students around these issues is a responsibility that needs to be shared. So I would say that the, uh, the primary thing that people can do is spread the responsibility for having that knowledge and not make assumptions that a person, because it's a person of color, has that knowledge or has ex- the kind of expertise that's needed to conduct research or teach or mentor students in that area, but rather everybody has to learn. And that then I think uh, for the well-meaning people, if, if that wealth is spread, they're not automatically going to turn to the darker skinned person and say, oh, it's got to be her. They're, they're going to know that, well, all of us have it. And so who, 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 do, who does this particular lens uh, or, or aspect of it better? You know, who do we give that assignment to? Yeah, we have to start somewhere. But, you know, another thing I'm doing right now is I'm studying microaggressions. Mm. And, and some of these little uh, insults, if you will, that, that people make, uh, that they don't even know they're insulting somebody when they say it. And one of, that's one of the reasons I'm studying it is that I'm, I'm, I'm actually developing training videos for faculty, because for, I'm looking at faculty-to-student microaggressions. And so these things that, that faculty say to students that, that are insulting, and the faculty member often doesn't have a clue that they were insulting somebody. So you know, I think we need to be able to say, well, when you, know, when you say this, you know, it, it, it hurt my feelings or it, it insulted me, and I don't know that you meant to, but 
here's what that meant to me. And, uh, and and to be to be able to on on the receiving end of that and and to be and to act respond humbly, and rather than defensively, because we're all, as you said we're always learning, and I think giving ourselves the gift or giving others the gift of responding humbly and giving ourselves permission to be humble and not to feel defensive when somebody is offended by something we said, but rather taking the opportunity to learn from that moment. Uh, goes a long way toward developing relationships and having further conversations. I'm really looking forward to learning more from the research you're doing on microaggressions. There's a great video that Vanderbilt's, I believe it was the, their Center for Teaching and Learning, I'll put a link to it in the show notes, that was a little illustration of some microaggressions that both TAs and faculty can inadvertently do. So I'll put a link there and and, and definitely looking forward to learning more from you in that area. Well, thank you. It'll take me a few months. We're, we're just now developing the films, but we do intend to use them as training videos. And it is my intention to make them, to do PSAs, to, to put them online so that anybody can access them. It, actually, as you were talking, I, w- I was sharing that one of the ways that I, I didn't realize I was doing this. When I redesigned the Teaching in Higher Ed website over the summer, I worked with a developer. We, it's categorized now, so I had to create a whole taxonomy and through that process, I inadvertently created a little self-check around diversity because people's thumbnails of their pictures show up. And there's five of them, I think, on the homepage. And then if you go to the podcast page, then you see, I think, 25 episodes at a time. And so I definitely want to see very diverse faces there from every sense of the word. And if I ever mm-hmm. start to see too many of the same kind of person. But but so one of the things I was very happy with over the summer was when I saw those episodes, I thought, wow, this is diversity. I love seeing this. It's a beautiful picture to me of my, one of my greatest contributions I think I've been able to make in my work. So it felt really good. But the number of episodes specifically on cultural competency at that time was only three. So I I felt like I was able to do what you described earlier. I did have people of color, many, many, many of them on the show, but they came talking about their area of expertise, which would be psychology, physics, you know, that kind of thing. So Uh Yolanda, this is the point in the show where we each get to give recommendations. And I wanted to share about an NPR link that I saw of a video that the title of the article, which I'll be linking to in the show notes is he will be our brother. Boy six asks President Obama to bring Syrian boy to live with him. And I'm actually going to play just a tiny bit of this so you can hear from this young boy instead of hearing me describe this young boy. This boy's name is Alex. Here's Alex. Dear President Obama, remember the boy who was picked up by the ambulance in Syria? Can you please go get him and bring him to our home? Park in the driveway or on the streets, and we'll be waiting for you guys with flags, flowers, and balloons. We will give him a family, and he will be our brother. Catherine, my little sister, will be collecting butterflies and fireflies for him. In my school, I have a friend from Syria, Omar, and I will introduce him to Omar, and we can all play together. I did warn Yolanda that it's really hard for me to hear that and not 
get teary-eyed. Alex. Yeah, <laughs> I've got tears over here. <laughs> oh, my God. That is, that is so sweet oh. and so moving. And, oh, oh, I just want to give that child a hug and say thank you. In case anyone couldn't hear Alex's words, he said, we will give him a family and he will be our brother. Catherine, my little sister, will be collecting butterflies and fireflies for him in my school. I have a friend from Syria, Omar, and I will introduce him to Omar. We can all play together. And I won't, I won't, (laughs) I won't share this story about my week this week, because I know we don't have time, but I will be blogging about it. But I had Instead of a six-year-old, I, ha- I got to have a beautiful conversation with some 18 to 25-year-olds, and it's been a difficult week. It's been well, a couple weeks. There's been a lot in the news, and we really got to have conversations about really complex things, and, and I just loved that, that they can bring this from when they're six to when they're 16 to when they're 26, and we... We can heal when we have these conversations and when we focus our attention on the kindness and love that's in the world. So I just loved that video and I just encourage people to listen and get your tissues out. Yes, that's beautiful. At, at our university, uh, with uh, uh, the last, well, all this that's happened this week, yesterday, on my way to class, I passed the library and on the library wall, there were placards. People had taken poster boards, and I don't know who brought the poster boards or the markers, but they were writing messages on these poster boards and then uh, taping them to the library wall. And and I, I couldn't move from them. I mean, it was just the, the wall was plastered, and I haven't been there today. I'll bet there's a lot more today. And and they were there were beautiful messages from these college students about how they were feeling, seeing what was going on in the news and what they wanted to do. And... Uh, You know, I I think it's beautiful. Yolanda, what do you have to recommend today? Well, one of the classes I'm teaching right now is Race in the United States. And I recently showed my students a film. It's a very old film, and you might have heard of it. It's called Eye of the Storm. And speaking about children, this is about children. And there's another version of it called The Class Divided because it's, it's been... It's been showcased in different ways. The class divided or the eye of the storm. And this is the story of a white teacher named Jane Elliott, who was in Idaho. After MLK died, she was trying to figure out how to teach her third graders about these important lessons about uh, loving one another, no matter who we are, the color of our skin. And she did something fascinating, and she did it for like 17 years or something, and this, this film is about that. So... These were all white students. It was a white town. So she divided them up into blue eyes and brown eyes, and she put a value on blue eyes and brown eyes. So she said, well, blue-eyed people today, blue-eyed people are better. Blue-eyed people get to have extra recess. Blue-eyed people, all these extra things. And brown-eyed people, you you don't drink from the water fountain. You have to get a cup and then throw the cup away after you're done with it. Brown-eyed people don't don't get to recess. And, and, ooh, look at that brown. Look, look at that. Look at Jeremy. He's brown-eyed, and look look how his face is doing. That's that's brown-eyed people. So she, within the space of two minutes, she constructed eye color and put value on eye color. And the response from these students, how they absorbed it, 
and and took it in, you know, like, you know, yes, blue eyes better, brown eyes. And then the next day, in all fairness, she shifted it. She said, I was wrong. Brown eyed people are better. And she turned it around. But she even found differences in, in how quickly they went through the phonics cards when they were blue eyed and when they were brown eyed and depending on whether blue eyed was up that day or not. And it was a tremendous lesson. But watching these third graders be transformed and get their feelings hurt, but also become vicious, you know, and uh, one of the things that stands up in my, stands out in my mind is one of the boys said, well, you know, he called us names and Miss Elliot says, well, what name did he call you? And she says, he says, he called me brown eyes. Mm-hmm. And he goes, mm-hmm. you know, and how quickly we can do that. And then, you know, the lessons we can learn about how, you know, how we how they, these are really constructions and, we, we did them so we can undo them. So I'd recommend Eye of the Storm. Oh, wonderful. Well, Yolanda, you know that I've been looking forward to this conversation and also a little bit nervous, but I think for the best reasons possible because I regard you so highly and I regard your work and you've Thank you. touched my life and I'm just hoping this is the beginning of a long conversation and that you'll be back on the show and, and can continue to share with us and teach us. Thank you. And, I, and I, I, I'm very honored by everything you've said and, and, and uh, this time that you've given me. And I hope that it met your expectations. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you. Thanks once again to Yolanda for being on the show and to Anne-Marie for recommending her. What a wonderful conversation. I'm, I'm just so excited to have future conversations and I hope some of you will pick up the book. If you haven't yet, there'll be a link to it in the show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 123. And this is the point in the show where I say, hey, this is a great community teaching in higher ed. And if you want it to spread a little bit, you can help out simply by writing a review for it on whatever service it is you use to listen to the show, or even just giving it a number of stars rating that really helps other people discover it and moves us up on the rankings so that people can find us in the higher ed category on the various services. So I'd really appreciate you doing that. And thanks so much to all of you that give feedback on the show. You can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. Give ideas for future episodes. And if you want to comment on this episode, that'll be at teachinginhighered.com slash 123. Thanks again to Yolanda. And I'll see everyone who listens next episode. <laughs>